with this book more than any of the other things I've written, I had a hard time letting go of the manuscript because it seemed like almost every day there would be an article coming out that I really, really wanted to include. So there would be something like, you know, like, oh, look, they've just figured out that um, early humans were, in fact, consuming more grains than anyone had ever thought. And, you know, that just came out in 2010. Um, and I, every single day it seemed like there was a new there was a new discovery being made so i i keep telling people these are really exciting times to be an evolutionary biologist in because we're we're getting some tools that allow us to answer some pretty important questions i'm uh, marlene zook i'm a professor in the department of ecology evolution and behavior at the university of minnesota Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. Our guest today is Dr. Marlene Zook. As you heard at the top of the show, Dr. Zook is a professor in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior at the University of Minnesota. She is also the author of several books, including, most recently, Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex, Diet, and How We Live. We talked to Dr. Zook about her research, her views on basic research, and, of course, her new book, and we learned a lot. The most interesting thing I learned? Our Paleolithic ancestors may have eaten a lot of grain. Supporting evidence for that idea comes from studies of residue on 30,000-year-old grinding stones and plaque found on the teeth of Neanderthals. You can tell someone was eating grains by looking at the plaque on their teeth? You can if you're anthropologist Amanda Henry, who has published several papers on this subject. And what's more, it looks like the grains were cooked prior to eating. That's pretty cool and pretty at odds with the idea of Paleolithic life a lot of people have. It's especially at odds with most versions of the Paleo diet, which is generally strictly carnivorous. Yeah, grains tend to be a big no-no in Paleo diets, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Before we can really talk about Paleo fantasies, we have to talk about why people believe in and practice Paleo lifestyles. Some of this also comes from this a feeling that, I, I, again, a lot of us share, that when you look at modern life, it seems like what we're doing now is so different than the way we evolved that you know we're living in cities we're relying on highly processed foods we're um, very sedentary and all of those things seem really different than the way human ancestors were living so we have fantasies about oh it would be more natural if we ate a certain way or we exercised a certain way or we raised our children a certain way so people will, um, you know, try and pursue a diet that they think is more natural or more like what people were doing um, a long time ago. They will try to exercise in a way that emulates what they imagine, you know, people in uh, the Pleistocene or at some point in uh, evolutionary history were doing, uh, and, and so forth. In Dr. Zook's book, she demonstrates that most of us don't know what a Paleolithic lifestyle was actually like that there is no good reason to specifically emulate the diets or lifestyles of Paleolithic peoples, and that, 
Even if there were, we are no longer the same species we were back then, so attempting to emulate the lifestyles lived by those peoples might not be all that beneficial. And as one example, there's the lack of grain in almost all contemporary paleo diets, even though grain may have been a big part of real paleo diets. Examples like that are fun and interesting, but they aren't really the focus of Dr. Zook's uh, work. Instead, practices like the paleo diet are given as examples of paleo fantasies and used to teach about evolution. So what is a paleo fantasy? Here's Dr. Zook. Um, I actually didn't pick the words for the title. Uh, I saw an article in Science Magazine um, a number of years ago in which Leslie Aiello, the president of the Wenner Grin Foundation, uh, she's an anthropologist, uh, was talking about how people, including anthropologists, tend to make up stories about the way human evolution worked. Uh, and she was referring specifically to talking about human brain evolution, and she was saying, well, is this really science, or are these just paleo fantasies? And I thought it was such a terrific word to talk about the way all of us tend to make up stories about what life was like a long time ago and then use those stories as a way to think about our lives today. We and Dr. Zook will cover more examples of paleo fantasies in just a moment. But to be clear, this book is not a condemnation of paleo diets. Dr. Zook doesn't care what you eat. I don't care what you eat, and Forrest doesn't care what you eat. Although I'm vehemently anti-bushmeat. <laughs> well, okay. We do care what you eat at least a little bit. And Dr. Zuck does care about the beliefs held by proponents of paleo lifestyles, at least a little. After all, if you have strongly held misinformed opinions that you use to validate your personal prejudices, if you stop critically evaluating your position, that might be a problem. But if you have factually based ideas about what paleolithic lifestyles were like, we can use those ideas to better inform ourselves about the human condition and ultimately benefit all of us. And not all modern conceptions of paleo lifestyles are misinformed. Some are interesting, factually relevant, and good starting points for legitimate scientific discussion. Here's Dr. Zook with one example. One of the things I found out a lot about for the book was um, barefoot running and the persistence hunting hypothesis and the idea that humans might have evolved doing long-distance running, which is just not a topic I had... I mean, I didn't know anything about it. I'm not really a runner myself. I, you know, and so I, I came into it completely naive and was fascinated and very convinced by the evidence that, oh, it looks like human beings really did um, evolve as runners and not just as walkers. And you can look at skeletal evidence and you can look at um, uh, some of the other uh, evidence that uh, uh, from people that grew up without uh, uh, shoes and running a lot and so on and so forth. But it seems to me the thing to do is to say, oh, this might have been an important thing in our evolutionary history. Now what we need to do is go out and do the science, collect the data, and figure out what that means for modern people who may have grown up wearing shoes and what it means for their running ability or their likelihood of getting injury and so forth. So I think using it as a jumping off point, I guess that's sort of a pun with the running stuff, but using it as a, as a jumping off point is, I think, a really great way to do it. It's when you, it's, it's this, uh, it's this fixation on we evolved as a certain way, you know, in a certain way to do certain things, and if we deviate from that, we're going to be doomed. That I think is unnecessarily restrictive. So some things that people believe about Paleolithic life may be right, and some are wrong. But even were everything everyone believed correct, we shouldn't just start living like cavemen. <laughs> well, there's a couple of reasons for this. Let's start with this one. Cavemen were no better adapted to their environment than we are to ours. 
a lot of people focus on the idea that agriculture was really bad for humans because uh, we simply aren't adapted to, for instance, a grain-based diet. And that may or may not be true, but I think this assumption, I mean, I, I really wrote the book not because I was so interested in what people did or didn't want to eat, and I, I always have to tell people, that I, I, my, my big character, this is not a, it's not a diet book, I'm not interested in writing a diet book, I don't really care what people eat, I mean, I guess I care sort of what some people eat, but um, I, I'm really not that interested in how people are designing their day-to-day -day life. I got interested in this because it reflects the way people think about evolution, and the latest discoveries in evolutionary biology are showing us that you can't really think of of species, humans included, as having evolved until they were perfectly in sync with their environment, whenever you think that was, whether that was 10,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago or a million years ago. And then after that, things changed and we're no longer perfectly in sync and we're all just doomed to this horrible, you know, obese, sedentary, um, you know, junk food filled um, existence. It's really easy to feel like life has changed at such a bewildering pace around us that, you know, here we are with our, we're saddled with our old genes and now we're living in a new place and so we're hopelessly mismatched to our environment. And I think we are mismatched in some ways, and I do say that in the book, and that's, you know, it's absolutely true that there are lots of aspects of our lives where we're living in a way that is not suited to our physiology. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I always tell you know, I'm, I'm not being like paid by the junk food people. I'm hardly suggesting that, you know, this, that rapid evolution means that we can just throw up our hands and say, oh, this is great. I'm just going to live on, you know, Cheetos and, and Coke for the rest of my life. I mean, that's obviously not true. This is not like a suit of clothes. You don't put them on and then take them all off. And then, so our genes were Stone Age genes. And then now, you know, we haven't had time to change into our modern clothes and so we're still wearing our Stone Age jeans. It's not like that. Our jeans are sometimes changing extremely quickly and sometimes extremely slowly. So we're carrying, humans are carrying around genes that we share with bacteria. We're carrying around genes that we have in common with fish. We're carrying around genes that we have in common with great apes and we're carrying around genes that changed extremely recently. So that some, some things can change some traits can change within a handful of generations. Scientists generally define rapid evolution as, or sometimes what's called contemporary evolution or evolution in an ecological timescale as happening within a hundred generations or less. And there's actually quite a lot of examples of that both in non-humans where biologists are actually starting to think, huh, this may be more common than we'd ever thought before and also in humans. So we don't have Stone Age genes in, a, in the Space Age any more than in the Stone Age we had Precambrian genes that we were lugging around in the Pleistocene. Okay, so one reason adopting a paleo lifestyle may not help you live to be 150 years is because you might not know what a paleo lifestyle is. And the second reason is that cavemen, they weren't living to be 150 either. They were little better adapted to their environment than we are to ours. Our evolution was not tens of millions of years of trying to create the perfect caveman. Rather, it was tens of millions of years of different species trying to do the best they could to survive as well as they could. As Dr. Zook put it, evolution is not an end-driven process. 
there's always those cartoons that show, you know, like the fish kind of swimming in these in the sea, and then there's the amphibian kind of crawling on the land, and then there's the reptile and the, you know, the mammal, and eventually you always end up at the end with a human, and sometimes those cartoons show the human, you know, after they're standing all erect and proud with uh, holding a spear, then they end up hunched over with a pot belly and, you know, in front of a computer. Um, but, you know, the idea is that, oh, we've got these evolutionary progressions. And those are cute cartoons, um, and they convey a little bit about evolution, but mostly they're wrong because they act as if First of all, evolution was this linear process where one form is just replaced by a better form, which is replaced by a better form, and that's not true. Evolution of all organisms that are all organisms that are on Earth right now are just as evolved as all other organisms. So that's that's one fallacy. And the other one is that humans are not the pinnacle of evolution. Nothing was going toward people. So this idea that, oh, we were perfectly matched to our environment and then we've kind of thrown ourselves off of this peak by having agriculture or having modern society is just not really the way evolution works. So we covered a couple of reasons why living a Paleolithic lifestyle might not help you live a longer, healthier life. However, we've left the biggest reason for last. That reason? We aren't cavemen anymore. We've evolved. Here's just one example. If you think about our evolutionary past, humans, like all other mammals, of course, depend on milk when we're infants. But for all mammals except humans, the ability to digest milk goes away after weaning. We don't have lactase, the enzyme that we need to break down lactose, the sugar in milk. And so if you drink milk uh, after weaning and you don't have a particular genetic modification, then it you know, doesn't agree with you. But about, well, but, but people start, had started herding cattle which, uh, and other um, uh, animals, which they did for meat and hides. And they did that um, in many parts of the world. But what we think happened is that some parts, some members of the groups that herded cattle had a genetic variant that allowed them to digest dairy past the point of weaning. So they had something called lactase persistence. And it's a genetic quality that's, you know, inherited. Well, if you happen to have that quality and you're in a society where cattle are being uh, kept, you have a tremendous advantage because, first of all, you have a food source you can digest that other people don't. And second of all, it's been suggested that perhaps it was a source in some parts of the world of unpolluted fluid. So instead of, you know, drinking water, which might be contaminated, you could drink uh, milk and digest it and thrive. Well, those people in those societies then were more successful at leaving their uh, offspring and their genes in successive generations. That in turn meant that there was more selection for keeping cattle, and you end up with what's called gene culture coevolution. So that keeping cattle selects for people who can digest dairy. Having a lot of people who digest dairy then means that keeping cattle is a really good idea, and so you start keeping cattle more, and the whole thing um, works in concert. And the end result has been that for people who are descended from those dairy herding uh, uh, ancestors, they now have a gene that allows them to digest dairy products past the point of weaning. That's certainly not true for all human beings, so it's not universal, but it's a case of evolution that's happened to humans in as little as 5,000 years. 
which is just extraordinary from an evolutionary perspective. And it's really changing our ideas about, you know, oh, no, evolution requires millions of years, and it's something that, you know, you only have to think about with dinosaurs and fossils and dead stuff. That's not true at all. And that is just one way some of us have come to benefit from novel food sources. Dr. Zooks gives a great example from the work of Dr. Hehemann. People in Japan eat quite a bit more seaweed than do people living in most other places, and seaweed can be hard to digest. However, living on seaweed, and eaten by people eating seaweed, are microbes that contain genes that help break down some of the carbohydrates in seaweed into more digestible forms. These helpful bacteria can transfer those genes to other microbes already living in the digestive system. The result is now you, the person eating seaweed, can more effectively digest that seaweed. And importantly, that study found these modified bacteria, these ones that normally live in your gut and had essentially learned how to digest seaweed, in the intestinal tracts of pre-weaning infants that had never themselves eaten seaweed. The implication is that the ability to effectively digest seaweed is a heritable characteristic that can appear in just one generation. We're not, and Dr. Zook isn't, trying to advocate for something like Lamarckian evolution. But evolution can happen very quickly. Here's Dr. Zook giving an example from her own work. Part of why I got interested in this topic, again, you know, it wasn't like I was interested in, you know, human diet per se. I got interested in it because the crickets that I've been studying for quite some time exhibited exactly that, rapid evolution. They suddenly, um, within, and in this case it was within less than 20 generations, the majority of male crickets in some of the populations that I work on now exhibit a wing mutation that makes them unable to call. And I think it's because of selection pressure from a parasitic fly that homes in on the songs of the crickets and deposits larvae that then eat them while they're still alive from the inside out. So it's all very gory and, and science fiction-like. But that selection pressure means that if you don't call, you're protected from this dangerous parasite. Now, it also means that you have a hard time attracting a mate. And so what, I'm, what I was originally fascinated by and what we're still continuing to work on is, well, so what happens when you have different selective pressures acting on exactly the same trait in opposite directions. So, you know, on the one hand, calling a lot is a great thing for a male cricket because that's how he gets a mate. On the other hand, calling is a terrible thing for a male cricket because he's going to be exposed to this deadly parasite. What's been cool about it for us is that it allows us to, to really see, and this is another point that I think often isn't appreciated about the way evolution works, that everything we see is, is a compromise. You never see anything that's, oh, yes, this organism is just perfectly adapted to its environment. Um, that's, ex that's just exactly the best way for it to be. So calling is good, but then calling is also not so good. Um, you can look at lots of other traits like that. You can look at, um, oh, I, I don't know, like a sled dog where you say it's incredible the way uh, they can... Um, uh, survive up in the Arctic and they can, you know, manage to run, uh, run fast. But the problem is if you're running fast and you have long skinny legs, which are helpful for running fast, then that also is going to compromise your ability to live in really cold climates because having more surface uh, to volume in your legs is going to make you chill down faster. And so there's always, the, you know, and virtually everything you look at is this series of trade-offs and series of compromises. So partly, you know, things often look, you know, perfect to us, but in fact, all of life is kind of full of this kind of jury-rigged um, set, of, set of conditions. 
Dr. Zook is a fantastic scientist and a wonderful writer, and she is definitely a much more eloquent speaker than I. And obviously she can describe her research in wonderfully vivid terms. The whole parasite eating the cricket from the inside thing is pretty vivid. Right? It definitely sounds like science fiction. And you and I and peer reviewers and grant reviewers and Dr. Zook's peers all think she does good work with a lot of value and that it's worth funding. But if you were less eloquent than Dr. Zook, or perhaps mean-spirited, mm. you might summarize her work by saying she studies cricket sex. <laughs> mm. That would be a much less generous way to describe Dr. Zook's work, but... And yeah, and People a lot less like honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, or they might not. Yeah. It, it's a bit less honest way to do it, but that sort of thing happens. And it happened recently to Dr. Patricia Brennan. Mm. Dr. Brennan got her PhD at Cornell, followed that up with work at both Yale and Sheffield universities, and is now a research professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She does work on the evolutionary consequences of sexual conflict, or, if you were being less generous and less honest, you might say she looks at duck penises. <laughs> And looking at duck penises is essentially how a number of news outlets describe Dr. Brennan's work. Dr. Brennan receives funding from the National Science Foundation, and as you might have heard, the U.S. government is cutting back. Budgets are tight, and someone noticed that the NSF was funding a study originally titled Plasticity in Duck Penis Length. <laughs> Admittedly, that sounds like an odd thing to study. And the authors of that study must have recognized the possible problem with their title when, a few years ago, they retitled their study, Sexual Conflict, Social Behavior, and Evolution. Joanna and I have strong opinions on the values of both basic research and Dr. Brennan's work in particular. We're for it. Right. But this isn't our interview, it's Dr. Zook's. And Dr. Zook knows Dr. Brennan and works on a topic related to Dr. Brennan's. To close our interview, we asked Dr. Zook for a defense of basic research. One of the things that Patty argues is that we need to understand about the universe and we need to understand how it works. And the only way we're going to get there is from basic research. I actually have a couple more points you know, to add to that. One of them is that, of course, it's easy for um, politicians or whoever else to pick on either her work or the, the, the other one that got a lot of play recently was the robo-squirrel thing. I don't know if you saw that. Um, and... Uh, so, you know, in both cases, well, sure, people know what a duck is and they know what a squirrel is, but there's lots and lots of research in, say, molecular biology, which seems equally esoteric and equally useless because we're trying to understand, you know, how does the cell work? Um, we're trying to understand how cells work, not because, you know, no, no one's submitting a grant called Curing Cancer, Part 1. Instead, we figure that understanding how cells work is going to help us eventually solve lots and lots and lots of human problems. And that's true for, behavior, for animal behavior, which is what I do. It's true for you know, physiology. It's true for all kinds of endeavors. So you know, basic research, you know, I don't know why for some reason they're picking on, you know, they're picking on organisms whose names they know. I, I imagine that if you're working on, you know, on various kinds of bacteria, people are a little bit more hesitant about that. But, you know, there's lots of research on yeast that you could make sound equally esoteric and, you know, and unapplied. So that's, that's one, you know, that's one point that I, I think sometimes doesn't get made with this is that it's not like you can pick on the grizzly bears or the ducks or whatever. It's just that politicians can say duck and grizzly bear and they can't necessarily, you know, say Escherichia coli. Um, so, so that might be part of it. And the other part of it that, as a professor, I really feel very keenly is that 
So, okay, you know, there's this constant balance. I'm working at a university, I'm doing research, and I'm teaching. And so there's kind of this idea that the research is this little fluffy stuff that I do, but my real job, the job that taxpayers are supposed to be paying me to do, is the teaching part. And so, you know, I've, I've joked with people, I, you know, that you know, the idea is, well, why don't you, you're a professor, why don't you just go ahead and, and you know, profess and stop with, you know, the whole research thing. And the problem is then, well, what would I teach? And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that facetiously, but I think a lot of people don't understand that it's not like someone wrote a biology book about, you know, how stuff works 150 years ago, and we're all just using that. What we teach depends on what we're finding out about the world, and the way we find out about the world is through research. So today we talked with Dr. Marlene Zuck about why what we think about paleo lifestyles might be wrong, why paleolithic people weren't perfect, and how we continually evolve and adapt. We talked a lot about evolution and the value of basic research. We covered a lot of ground, but so does Dr. Zook's readable and wonderfully annotated book, Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex, Diet, and How We Live. We'd like to thank Dr. Zook for joining us today and talking about her book and defending basic research. If you'd like to talk with us about science, basic research, books, or anything else, you can always do so by finding The Grok Science Show on Facebook and Twitter. You can also listen to us anytime on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, archive.org, or our own website, grox.net. For the Grox Science Show, and for Charles Lee and Frank Lang, I'm Forrest Gordon. And I'm Joanna Rowell. Thanks for listening, and keep on grokking.